Okay, boys and girls, sports <coughs> fans, assorted waves and strays, guess who? It's Den here, and we have a special recording today with my good old buddy Tom Raftery, who is living in the country that I left. Where are you, Tom? Dennis, how are you, how you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. I am in Seville, in the south of Spain, and loving it here. I, I moved here. I'm Irish originally, as you know, and moved here in 2008, and uh, I like to tell people I'm a climate refugee. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, we do have sunshine here, but it's bloody cold. I guess where you are, you have sunshine and it's not cold. Correct, <laughs> correct. Well, it, it's uh, it, it's a chilly 15 degrees today, so it, it's cool enough. A chilly 15 degrees. For me, For me, that would be summer, as I'm sure you know, based in the wilds of Yorkshire. Anyway, look, Tom, um, for those that don't know you and your background, um, just talk a little bit about yourself for a minute or two, eh? Sure. So, uh, as you said, name is Tom Raftery. Uh, I work for SAP. My role in SAP, I'm a global VP, uh, futurist and innovation evangelist is, is my title. Um, I Before joining SAP, I, I worked for uh, Redmonk for a while. Redmonk is an industry analyst firm, an open source industry analyst firm. And within Redmonk, I led the practice called Green Monk, and Green Monk was the energy and sustainability practice that operated within Red Monk. So I, I led Green Monk for seven years. Uh, before joining uh, Red Monk, I, um, I was involved in multiple different things. I, I lived in Ireland back then. And I, for example, I co-founded a hyper energy efficient data center. I had a social media consultancy practice. And I also uh, co-founded and ran a software firm for a good number of years. Uh, kind of the, the, the kind of, uh, what do you want to say? common theme amongst all the things that I was doing is it was always kind of leading edge stuff. The the software firm I co-founded, I co-founded in 95 and ran it to 2002 when I merged with another company. And the kind of stuff we were doing was really bleeding edge stuff. We wrote the first uh, WAP uh, mobile phone games, for example, which we sold to Aircell, which was then the mobile phone operator in Ireland. And we were doing a lot of stuff. Everything we were doing at that time was kind of uh, web-fronted databases, uh, what's now known as a software as a service. And this, this was, like I say, between 95 and 2002. And then when we when we merged the company with another company in 2002, we started doing ERP applications, again, web-delivered and database-backed. So very early to that kind of stuff. And then the social media consultancy was kind of 2004 to 2008. And the hyper energy efficient data center was 2006 to 2008. And then 2008, I moved to Spain. So I left all those behind and joined Redmonk. And again, a lot of the stuff I was doing in Redmonk was researching up to the second and, and bleeding edge stuff around energy and sustainability in particular. And then uh, 2016, I joined SAP. And again, a lot of the stuff is kind of futuristic stuff that I'm looking at. So looking at trends in technology. Okay. Tom, a polymath, obviously, right? <laughs> so I get around. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, that's a, for sure. ADD, true. Dennis. I'm ADD, that's what it is. I can't, I get bored if I stay in one place for too long. All ah, right, okay. I think I think we all do to a degree. But um, <laughs> just on the, the energy side, because I know that that's the focus and, you know, your your discussion around that is um, is always interesting, if not provocative. I mean, what's kind of top of mind for you at this moment in time? Other than the fact that we are all supposed to love Teslas, I know. <laughs> Uh, the, the energy space is a really interesting one, I think, because so much is changing there. Um, the 
the for, for a long, long time, we've needed to move away from fossil fuels and onto renewables. And for the longest time, it hasn't been happening or it's been happening very, very slowly. But in the last couple of years, it has really accelerated. Uh, in 2017, there was more solar deployed globally than there was all fossil fuels combined. So there was 98 gigawatts of solar deployed in 2017. And for people who are unaware a gigawatt is the output of a nuclear power plant so 98 gigawatts of solar deployed globally in 2017 we still don't have the full the full numbers for 2018 that's why i'm using 2017 numbers of those 98 over 50 gigawatts of that was was deployed in china so china is really leading the world in this space and why why is it happening is it because suddenly everyone you know decided to get green and go out and hug trees unfortunately not uh, what it is, is it's economics. It's down to economics. Uh, in 1977, the cost of a, a megawatt hour uh, of, of solar photovoltaic cells was $76. It's dropped now to two cent per kilowatt hour and below that. So gone from $76 to two cent per kilowatt hour now. So the, the, the cost has crashed and it is it keeps falling it's there's a thing called the swanson effect this the swanson effect is like moore's law but it's for solar and what the swanson effect says is that for every doubling of installed capacity the price drops 20 percent mm -hmm. and that has held true from 77 and of course it leads to a beautiful virtuous circle because as more is installed the price gets lower it becomes more attractive to more people more is installed and so on and so on and so on so Solar, the, the price of solar is, you know, it's coming down and down and down and it doesn't seem to have a, a stop. And it's it's because of technological reasons and economies of scale. Uh, the technologies are just getting better all the time. Okay. And it's it's not just solar, it's wind as well. And then we have the, the, the shift to storage. You've got those three things going on and they're contributing massively to the decarbonization of the energy grids. Mm. I remember back in, the, back in the day, maybe 10 years ago, when you were really starting to talk about this, um, I sense that there was a tremendous amount of frustration from your perspective because <laughs> you, you knew that at the end of the day it's all got to come down to economics and yet it seemed at the, that time that progress has been slow. Is, is it the case that um, progress and innovation has really accelerated over the course of the last few years and that's led to this dramatic fall or has it, it been it, linear? It, it hasn't been linear. It, it, it's getting faster uh, mm. and the other contributing factor as well is the rise of IoT. Um, and another topic that I'm, I'm passionate about. And of course, because traditional power plants are these big central uh, thermal plants typically, uh, and the, the, the shift to renewables is breaking up that kind of architecture of the grids. You need better communications technologies to talk to the more decentralized energy sources that are making the generation. And that's where IoT comes in and it has helped deploy far more wind farms and far more now what we're seeing is far more storage farms popping up or combinations of solar and storage. Uh, the first big solar plant, sorry, first big storage plant was deployed in South Australia last year. And sorry to, to bring it up, but it was a Tesla plant. 
<laughs> we'll and, let you uh, off. We'll let you off. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was it was funny. It happened uh, through through Twitter almost. So the the there were several politicians in South Australia complaining about the the grid there and the fact that they had several outages. And uh, Elon Musk jumped on Twitter and said, "Look, I'll build you a storage plant, uh, and I'll build you the largest one in the world, 100 megawatts. And if I don't get it done in 100 days, I'll give it to you free." He wow. tweeted this. Wow. Yeah, he, t- he tweeted that and they took him up on it and he built it and he got it done. Largest battery park in the world, 100 megawatts of storage done in less than 100 days, came in on time, came in on budget. And what's more, it's it came in at a cost of $60 million. One six. But six zero. Oh, six, six zero. zero. Okay, fine. Yeah, 60 million. Okay. But in its first year of operation, it has saved $40 million. So that, you know, it's almost got a, it's got a one and a half year ROI. And the um, AEMO, that's A-E-M-O, is the Australian Energy Market Operator. Mm. And they issued a report about the battery plant uh, in April of 2018. So when it had been in operation about uh, six months, five, six months, Mm -hmm. they issued a report about it and it was glowing. They talked about how it was able to respond to requests for frequency control in milliseconds compared to thermal plants, which took minutes and how it it, um, was far more efficient uh, and, and obviously faster and far, far cheaper than the thermal plants for the same services as well. So, you know, a real glowing report. And as a result of that, we're now getting far more storage plants being built out in Europe. There's a new one in Belgium on the site of an old coal mine. And just in the last couple of weeks, PG&E in California mm-hmm. uh, applied to the California, um, what's it called? It's the uh, the California... Um, what, the regulator? The regulator, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah let's call him that. It's, I think it's CPUC, mm. uh, Public Utilities Commission. Yes, it is. Uh, so they applied to the, the Public Utilities Commission in California to build uh, three gas plants. And the Utilities Commissioner said, or the Utilities Commission said, no, uh, right. don't build gas plants. Instead, build battery plants. So they're now building two battery plants, one of 730 megawatt hours. Now, remember the one I said in South Australia was 100. Mm -hmm. So they're building one of 730 and they're building another of 1,200. So that's the Americans for you, isn't it? Right? Yeah. (laughs) You done it big, we're going to go large. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a stunning development. And this is down uh, to the huge amount of research that's gone into batteries in the last few years as well. And the cost of batteries cratering. Uh, I mentioned the cost of solar cratering, the cost of wind cratering as well. And now the cost of batteries cratering, uh, it was $1,000 per kilowatt hour for batteries in 2010. It's now about 150. So it's fallen nearly 90% in the last eight years, Mm. eight, nine years. And it's, again, it's going to continue to fall. And it's not just the price of the batteries, but they're becoming more energy dense. So the amount of energy that they can hold is increasing. And this has huge implications for utilities. uh, And it has huge implications as well for transportation. The global 
storage deployments, as I said, we've gone from the 100 being the biggest one last year to now their plans for ones of 1,200 and 750. The global solar deployments are going to, or sorry, storage deployments are just going to absolutely balloon. That market is going to, and I hate using the word explode when I'm talking about batteries because it's a, it's a loaded term and nearly said a charged term. Yeah. <laughs> doubling yeah. down on my puns but you know it is it's really going to explode it's going to be a massive massive increase so j- j- let's look at this from there are three dimensions to this from where i'm sitting one is from the utility provider standpoint because you know they're, they're being required to make significant investments they want to return on that investment yep. but on the other hand from a consumer perspective we want cheaper and cheaper power and we're going to need a lot more of it as well yeah, yeah. and yep. then you've got you've mentioned this business of of iot which I, which maybe we can talk about a little bit more definitionally because you and I both well know that in the technology world, it's very much a fashion thing. So, you know, as, as Larry Ellison said, what was it last year? It was puce. This year it is fuchsia or the other way around or whatever the heck. Um, and I think that definitionally it's probably appropriate to sort of get into this. So from the producer's perspective, there's this tension at least – at least from what I've seen, and just excuse my ignorance here for a moment, Sure. where where for, for so long it's been, yeah, it's got to be fossil or nuclear, and why should we even consider um, alternative energy sources? Perhaps that gets answered through the economics. Um, it does. Yeah. Um, is, is, is it the economics that are, uh, that are providing the, the incentive, or is it the push from those who want to see genuine change from a climate perspective, the whole carbon neutral footprint perspective. What, sure. what is what is it? What's really driving this at the end of there's, the day there's from two, their perspective? You, you called it. There's two main forces. <laughs> uh, the first, it's the economics. And second, it's regulatory. Mm. And the, the, they come together because, for example, if you take the European market, uh, it is now cheaper. And get this, this is a stunning development. And this, we're at a landmark moment in history. And I, I don't like using hyperbole, but this is this is absolutely stunning. We're now at a point in time in Europe where it is cheaper to build new wind or new solar than it is to operate existing coal or gas plants. Wow. Wow. And that 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 is a stunning development, and part of the reason for that uh, comes down to well, I mentioned uh, technology and regulations, and it is it is the combination of those because, sure, the technology is driving the price down, but regulations are driving up the price of coal and gas. Uh, the on the uh, EU ETS market, uh, for the first time last year, the price of a ton of CO2 went over 20 euros and it hit 25 euros by the end of the year and it's set to hit 35 euros this year. So that's driving up the cost of fueling coal and gas plants. When, when, you're, so, talking about, when you're talking about carbon offsets, is that what you're talking about there? When you yeah. talk about the cost of CO2, yeah? Correct. Oh, okay, correct, fine, correct. fine, fine, fine. So, okay. so uh, because the, car- the cost of carbon is going up, the cost to fuel these power plants is going up and technology is driving down the cost of wind and solar. And so as a result, it's now cheaper to build net new wind and solar than to run existing plants. So, okay. Is it, hang on, Tom. Is, is that true regardless of nation state. So for instance, I'm just thinking about Germany here, not because you work for a German company, but if my understanding is correct, you know, they're one of the dirtiest producers of 
of energy in Europe with a lot of, what is it called? Brown stuff or whatever right, the heck. Note, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but does it, do the economics work out evenly regardless of the nation state or, or is it lumpy from that perspective? It, it's pretty even given the it's the EU ETS market, which is causing the prices to go up. And that's, a, that's, a, Euro, that's a Euro market. So, okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much across the board. Uh, and in fairness to Germany, they are they are bringing far more renewables online and they are starting to uh, shutter coal plants. Not enough yet. Uh, and but but I mean, they're nowhere near as bad as Poland, for example. Mm. Uh, so we, we still have a lot of work to do in, in some parts of Europe uh, here in Spain. Uh, the government recently made an announcement that they're going to commit to building three gigawatts of uh, renewables every year until 2050, between now and 2050, three gigawatts of, of new generation from renewables. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's a, that's a beautiful announcement. And they've announced that Spain is going to go carbon neutral by 2050. That, that's interesting in its own right, because I remember when I was living in Spain, it, it struck me as, as kind of weird that, um, the north and northwest of Spain was producing much more by way of renewable energy than it was in yeah. the part of Spain that you and I used to live in. It was like, hmm, Correct. that's a bit weird, isn't it? But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't. Yeah, it, it, it is weird. And there, there was uh, there was as well. The coal plants were propped up. Uh, they got a euro grant for several for four billion, I think it was, in 2011 uh, from the EU, which was bizarre, uh, but it was it was negotiated. But now, uh, part of that agreement uh, for that money, for that four billion, said that the coal plants have to shutter by the start of this year uh, or next year. So within the next 12 months, every coal plant in Spain either has to shut down or it has to give back the grants that it got. So, you know, it's not going to be economic for any of them to stay open. So uh, this is the coal mines and coal plants, both. So... The, the economics are clearly driving it, along with regulation. From a consumer standpoint, uh, we seem to have gone through a long period where prices only ever go up. They've yeah. not stabilised, and yet we know that the requirements for energy are only going to increase, regardless of the extent to which people like myself, for instance, w we use a company called Bulb, which promises to be... Um, to use only yeah. green fuel, yeah. I know, bulb, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we try to we try to use LEDs wherever we possibly can. Uh, the ability to actually measure and control our use of energy, I think, is probably not quite there because it's the devices maybe haven't got quite there. But yeah, you know, from a consumer standpoint, I'd like to think that first of all I could control it, and secondly, I'd like to think long term that you know if we're essentially getting energy from sources that are fundamentally free, right, despite the yep. infrastructure cost, then then the cost to me ultimately will either fall or stabilise. I mean, what's the what's the kind of situation on the consumer side? I, I'm going to guess and say that maybe the awareness isn't quite there yet for consumers to be fully aware of what, what could be possible. But I mean, tell me what you say. Right. No, I, th I think you're right. Um, I think there's still a huge lack of knowledge at the, on the consumer side about what is possible, what is what is actually achievable. Right. Uh, and for utility companies, 
they have to, as you rightly say, they have to make huge investments yeah. uh, to increase their source of generation, to phase out their fossil fuels, to bring on more renewables, to bring on more storage because the renewables are variable generators. So hence you need storage to balance the grid. Mm-hmm. But as well as that, we're going to see developments as well as we move to uh, electrifying our transportation then you'll start to get the cars that people own contributing to that because while while people right now might be buying battery storage for their homes in the forms of the Tesla Powerwalls or the Siemens or whatever others, the Bosches, you know, why would you do that? The Tesla Powerwall is a 14 kilowatt hour battery, mm. whereas when you have a car, it will typically have somewhere between 60 and 100 kilowatt hours of storage in it. So it may, it would make far more sense to be using your car as storage and then not just you use the car as storage, but you sell the use of the storage of your car back to your grid operator. Mm. So suddenly these uh, fleets of cars uh, that are in our driveways or our garages or on our streets plugged into lampposts or whatever become virtual power plants that utilities can dip in and out of when they want. If the wind is blowing hard overnight and there's not enough people uh, demanding electricity, well, then the cars suck in the electricity. And if the if during the middle of the day, there's a peak in people using air conditioners or heaters or whatever it is, and they need more power, they just draw it from the cars that are plugged in at the time. Or if you like me, you become a pensioner, get a free bus pass, uh, <laughs> don't no longer have a car and use Uber when you have to. <laughs> Sure. But here's an interesting stat for you, Dennis. The the sales of uh, electric cars in Europe this year is about 2 to 3% of new vehicles. Okay. The sales of electric buses, 9%. Wow. Yep. Yep. Buses are going fully electric. And that's fully electric buses, 9% of new bus sales in Europe this year. In China, it's 100% uh, of new sales. Uh, China has now about 50% of its bus fleet is fully electric. It's, it's at about 400,000 buses. Uh, the London bus fleet is around 9,500 buses, to give you a bit of context. Mm. And China's producing a London bus fleet of fully electric buses every five weeks. They roll out another nine and a half thousand fully electric buses every five weeks. They're saturating China with them. As I said, they've got about 400,000 on the road in China. They're now going, they're now targeting uh, the rest of the world. Wow. Uh, and, and and why wouldn't they? Because they've got the manufacturing abilities to do so. They, they've sold a huge fleet into Santiago in uh, Chile uh, a few weeks back. Now, they, Santiago is the second largest fully electric bus fleet in the world outside of China. So if I'm hearing you right... Developing countries, the good old, what we used to call third world, are, are in some senses leapfrogging the rest of us in, they in their do, adoption. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They can do. They can do. They, it, it's an interesting time to be there because, as you say, they are developing. They've got uh, no legacy infrastructure holding them back. Yeah. There's no sunken assets there. They can just go straight, leap over the, the centralized power generation, leap over the old fossil fuel modes of transportation and go straight to electric. So that, that that has numerous implications, doesn't it? Because from an economic standpoint, these yep. kind of things are going to assist the general economy. They're going to yep. they're going to drive innovation in ways that you know is not just going to be restricted to good old Silicon Valley or, or, or a few other places. Yeah, that Correct. these are things that I fact, never knew, Tom. So this is sure. really new information for me. So that's Fantastic. really good. Yeah, Fantastic. carry on. Sorry. I'm, I'm actually no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to uh, Cape Town. 
uh, on the, I think it's the 24th of this month, 24th of January, 2019, mm-hmm. uh, to speak at a conference there. And it's the Enterprise Africa Summit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this kind of stuff I'll be talking about there for exactly those reasons. You know, the, the lack of legacy infrastructure, the lack of that milestone around the neck for investment. They can just leapfrog straight into the new technologies. Uh, yeah, first, first of all, I'm insanely jealous because January is probably one of the best months of the year to go to Cape Town. <laughs> Second, secondly, uh, I don't know if you, have you been to Cape Town before? Yeah, no? No, I haven't. I've been right. to uh, Johannesburg and Sun City, but I've never been to Cape Town. Okay, well, one thing I can tell you about the, the scene in, in, in Cape Town is, is that when guys like you rock up and start talking about this stuff, they absolutely soak this, this kind of stuff up. And, and I think you might be surprised at just how far ahead their thinking is. Um, I certainly found this some years back when I went to visit them, and it, this was in the context of trying to help the unbanked uh, get right. into the banking system. I was just amazed at how smart and how innovative those people had been in order to solve what, at least from where I'm sitting, sounded like an intractable problem. So I, th- I think, first of all, um, you're going to have a great time there. It's a fabulous yeah. place. Uh, There's second, a huge appetite for innovation there. Absolutely. And um, I'll be delighted to hear what you find when you when you come back. Um, let's just switch gears a little bit, try and get to the IoT thing, because... Um, as I said before, it, it, it tends to be one of those topics where initially I tend to cringe because it's like, what on earth does this mean? <laughs> Given that, you know, my thinking about IoT is like, okay, we did RFID, what's new? Yeah? And, yeah. Um, and we hear about sensors. What does that mean? I have no idea. Um, so let, let, me, let me tell you a story, Dennis. It's not a lullaby, and, is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. In, uh, on, on the 21st of March last year, my older son, Tomas, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Okay. And it was a huge shock to all of us because there's no history of, of diabetes in, in our family at all. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm from an Irish family. I've got something like 70 or 80 first cousins, uh, and not a one of them has diabetes. Yeah. And when he was diagnosed, uh, type 1 diabetes, I don't know if your listeners know much about it. Hopefully they don't. Uh, because it's not something you need, you want to learn, want to have to learn about. It meant that he had to measure his blood sugar six times a day by pricking his finger and causing it to bleed and squeezing the blood out and, you know, attaching it to a, a blood sh- a glucometer. It's called a blood sugar analyzer. And he had to inject himself with insulin five times a day Ugh. in response to that. Yeah. Ugh. So, uh, and he was 14 when he was diagnosed. He's turned 15 since. Mm. And... Then he, when he did the blood sugar reading, he used to write it into a book. It was at particular times of the day. And he'd write it into a book, you know, with a line for each day of the week. And then the the columns were the time of day. And then he would bring that to the medical team and they'd flip through the pages of the book looking for patterns in the blood sugar levels so that they could adjust the insulin so that he could properly control his blood sugar levels. Mm. And just to be clear, this is a lifetime condition. This is not something that you grow out of. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. completely lifetime, yeah. Right. Sorry, carry on. Sure. And over the summer, they moved him on to a new system called the flash sensor system. And what that is, is he attaches a sensor to the back of one of his arms, either his left arm or his right arm. And this sensor stays on his arm for 14 days. Mm-hmm. And it's got inbuilt an NFC chip. Okay. So it can analyze his blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And instead of uh, the six readings per day that we were getting from his pricking his finger, 
This analyzes his blood sugar every minute. So we now get 1,440 blood sugar readings per day. Virtually continuous, in other words. Yep, Yep. absolutely. And he swipes his phone over it to get to download the data from the sensor onto his device, onto his phone. Mm-hmm. So it's just NFC. He doesn't have to even take off his, his, his shirt. He just swipes over where the sensor is on his arm. Mm-hmm. It downloads it to the phone. The phone uploads it to a personal private health cloud, which I have access to, his mother has access to, his healthcare team have access to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a cloud delivered solution. They can see at all times what his blood sugar levels are like and how his patterns are changing and how we need to adjust the insulin response to it. Every time he swipes over it as well, my phone gives me a notification so I can see it. My watch gives me a notification so I can see it. Mm. And all this, Dennis, is a result of, you asked me about IoT, that's where this is coming from. This is a result of not just IoT, it's a result of IoT, it's a result of uh, the cloud-delivered solution as well and the analytics on the cloud-delivered solution. So it's a combination of those technologies. We see it with the analytics, we see the charts and the graphs of his day-to-day patterns and his weekly patterns and his monthly patterns and that's all down to the analytics and as I say, the, uh, the, the NFC chip and the sensor uh, are the IoT component, and then the cloud solution means we can see it in a browser, we can see it on our phone, his medical team can see it, the whole thing. So it's a, it's a real microcosm to me of how IoT combined with the other technologies, because IoT by itself is, and this is controversial maybe, but IoT by itself is of no use to anyone. You need to combine IoT with big data. You need to combine it with analytics. You need to combine it with cloud solutions, you know, all and machine learning potentially Mm. for it to be of any use to anyone. Yeah, I mean, when you, a piece when you do of, combine these technologies, it can become very powerful. Yeah, a piece of hardware is just a piece of hardware, isn't it? I mean, it's like yeah. it's like our phone. It may look pretty in one thing and another, and no doubt at some stage it'll end up in a museum somewhere. But of itself, it's of no use whatsoever, is it? Without services that go with it. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. Right. Correct. right. The, the real usefulness of the iPhone came when they opened the App Store. Sure, absolutely. Now, just just on that particular example that you gave me, which again is brand new to me, and yes, I know that IoT and in healthcare is a topic to jour. Mm. How long has this been around? Is this, is this, I don't know, has it been around a year the, or two? Or? That flash sensor, about two years. Yeah, wow. Theresa May has one. So I, I opened up the uh, the newspaper one day while uh, Trump was visiting the UK and there was a picture of Theresa May in a sleeveless dress and mm-hmm. I saw the sensor in her arm. I went, oh, wow, she's got one too. That's interesting. Wow. So I showed my, I showed my son a picture of it and he was delighted. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I wonder if there's a sensor for detecting oncoming heart attacks when you meet President Trump. <laughs> Maybe that's a piece of innovation somebody will develop. Let's, let's not go there. <laughs> um, okay. So, so in some senses, when we try to sort of bring this around to the whole sort of energy thing, I guess what you're maybe implying is that the limits to where we can go in terms of application, functionality, utility, both from the consumer and from the um, uh, generator standpoint are limited only by imagination. Is that a fair, is that, I mean, that sounds a very grand, uh, lots of people say this, but I mean, it, it does sound <laughs> no, a little bit like that's the way it, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. It's absolutely true. I mean, the amount of things we'd be able to do in the energy space, and I've been spouting about this for a decade now, but you know, in, in fact, I was doing a lot of stuff about IoT in uh, in energy, and I called it Electricity 2.0 uh, back in the day, back in 2007, 8, and 9. I, I gave a talk on Electricity 2.0 at the O'Reilly Emerging Technology 
technology conference, the e-tech conference in Palo Alto in 2009. It's on, it's on YouTube. Yeah. And I was talking about this kind of stuff and the IoT hadn't developed. So I wasn't using the, the expression IoT and the communications technologies were not yet in place for this to happen. But now it's starting to happen. Now we can start getting uh, our uh, smart meters on our homes. We have a smart meter here in the front of the house, for example. Uh-huh. And they can communicate. They can start listening for pricing signals and adjusting the behavior accordingly. Oh, really? Like, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that's my, my kind of deal. My car, my car, for example, has sensors built into it and it can, it's an electric car and uh, it can decide when to charge itself overnight when electricity is cheapest. Uh, and we're not yet at the V to G stage, so it's not yet giving electricity back to the grid. But the car I have is a bi-directional car. It's developed so it can do that. That's one of the reasons I bought that particular model of car. Uh, and, you know, these kinds of technologies, because we've got the IoT, because we've got the communications infrastructures, because things can talk to things, it starts to become really interesting. You know, the kinds of things that we're going to be able to do really are, as you rightly said, only limited by our imagination. Tom, just just on that, and I, you know, I very specifically don't want to particularly go into things that might be confidential for your for your employer here, but... Sure. Give me an example of something that you've seen maybe in the last month or so that maybe nobody knows. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you've talked about that I'm pretty sure most people yeah. have not even heard of, but something mm-hmm. that in maybe the last month or so you've seen and you thought, wow, this okay. is really interesting. Sure, Please sure. don't use the GC word, game changer. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. So <clears throat> I was at a a customer meeting, and I'll leave the customer's name out of it, but I was at a customer meeting uh, late last year, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of last year, and the customer manages the uh, smart gas meters for all of a particular country. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to get to, they're applying to take uh, control of all of the smart electricity meters for the same country. So they're applying to the regulator to get this contract to do the management of all the smart meters for that country. Okay. And one of the things they want to allow consumers to do is to change their utility provider themselves just by pushing a button on a phone or something like that So the smart meter will then automatically switch from one utility provider to another, and it can happen in milliseconds. So you decide, oh, look, the electricity price is a little cheaper from green energy today. I think I'll go with them. You press a button on your phone and suddenly you've switched providers. Yeah, because it's a a tortuous process at the moment, that is for sure. Exactly, exactly. Now, what I said to them, and again, this talk I did in eTech back in 2009, I said the same thing. There will come a time when these meters are themselves listening for pricing signals or generation mix signals. So if you want to go for the cleanest, cheapest, greenest electricity at any point in time, your meter can suddenly start automatically switching providers from you on a minute by minute basis. So let me put this in terms that that I'll understand. So it's almost like me saying when I go onto Netflix that my preferences are for A, B, C and D and Netflix will surface for me whatever it is, well, in theory, will surface for me whatever it is that relates to my preferences or even almost like Amazon, right? In, in the sense yeah. of, you know, I, Amazon thinks I like so-and-so and it will just offer me that stuff. Or alternatively, maybe it gets better than this and says, actually, I've made this decision for you. Uh, do you it's, it's, agree or something along those lines, yeah? 
It, it's not quite that. So what okay. it is, is so if, if you think you're in the UK now and there are the what's called the big six energy providers in the UK, in reality, there's a lot more smaller ones like Bulb that you mentioned. Sure. So you could have your smart, you could say to your smart meter, I want electricity at two cent per kilowatt hour or fully green. Okay. Now go and go and find me a provider. And your smart meter does this and switches between providers five or six times a day. Oh, automatically wow. without <laughs> you being aware of it. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, that exactly. sets up an amazing. Uh, that sets up an amazing competitive um, environment, doesn't it? Wow! Yeah. You, you decide what parameters you want, and your smart meter just goes and does it. Now, I think. Look, I mean, I think there's going to be. I think there's going to be an education process here because, I mean, you know, the man in the street yep. isn't. It's going to find that quite hard to understand. I think. Yeah. And yeah. I'd much rather the machine took that those decisions for me. But uh, wow. Wow. What, okay, so you put that forward. What, what was said at the time? Did they sit back and say, not over my dead body or something along no, those lines? This, this, this was the way they were thinking, except they hadn't thought of automating it. Ah, right. They wanted it to be a push-button affair so that, okay, today I want to go with this provider. Okay. okay tom- tomorrow I want to go with this other provider. Okay. Whereas what I said was, no, no, have it automated. Let them set parameters, and then the smart meter makes its own decisions and does it itself. Okay. Tom, we're at 35, 36 minutes, and I want to get this wrapped in the next few minutes because uh, sure. we, could, we could talk forever, as I'm sure you know, but, <laughs> but other people have ADD as well. And anyway, <laughs> so Tom, you know, I come from the enterprise world, as you know, and so do you. Just tell, tell me what you think people like myself who are observing this and trying to understand it, uh, trying to provide some degree of analysis and maybe give people some uh, thoughts or suggestions about what they should think about. What, in your view, should be maybe the top two or three uh, things that, that we should be looking at going forward in, in this particular world? I know it puts you on the spot because there are yeah. probably 300. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think in the next uh, 12, 18 months, we're going to see, and this is going to sound very trite because I'm sure everyone else is saying the same thing. We're going to see the, the, the real rise of the use of AI in enterprise applications. We're seeing it already. And also a little further out, but it's going to happen as well, more increasingly, the use of blockchain. Um, blockchain had huge hype, particularly around Bitcoin last year, and then it crashed, and then it went into a kind of, uh, what, what's the Gartner term, the, the trough of disillusionment, that's, yeah. that's the, tr- the term I'm trying to think of. But all the time in the background, people have been working away on enterprise uses of it. And we're, we're going to start to see a couple of significant use cases arise in the next, it won't be immediately, it'll be 6, 12, maybe maybe even 18 months before we start to see some really interesting use cases come out. Smart contracts? Smart contracts, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to a company yesterday uh, who are making a big announcement on Thursday uh, about open sourcing a platform for programming uh, IoT devices onto the blockchain. Okay. Um, the company is called Occam, uh, if I remember correctly, and uh, they the 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 solution they showed me was really really interesting. And you know, they're a startup. It might you know, explode, it, they, they might go hockey stick or it might crash and burn and no one ever sees it. Mm. But the point is, they're just one of many who are working away at this kind of stuff. And the solution they showed me was beautiful. Uh, but we all know how startups can go. Uh, oh, yes. But 
they're not going to be the only ones doing it, is my point. And there's going to be people uh, working away behind the scenes in enterprises on blockchain stuff at the moment. And in the next, as I say, 12, 18 months, we're going to see some amazing blockchain solutions emerge. Okay. Now, you'll have to excuse me if I'm a little skeptical on this, because having spoken with one of your colleagues at the back end of last year, uh, where your company had actually done quite a lot of research around blockchain projects, it turns out that there's very little by way of live stuff out there. Heck of a lot of POCs, we'll yep. give you that, uh, yep, yep, but very yep. little by way of live stuff. So are you are you basically putting your head in the proverbial noose to a degree and saying, well, actually this will become reality and it will become something that's prevalent in the real world, maybe not today, maybe in yep. a few years' time, and let's not be too prescriptive about that, yeah? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, we have seen a lot of POCs. That's absolutely true. Uh, we've seen very little live. And that's why I'm saying it'll be 12, 18 months, because it's a tough nut to crack. You know, it's not an easy one. And this is where Occam's solution is going to help. The, the, the company is Occam. It's O-C-K, O-C-K-A-M is the name of the company. Okay, we'll look at it. We'll look at it. Okay. And uh, their, their solution will help. And as I say, they're not the only ones developing those kinds of solutions, because they, what they're aiming to do is make it easy for enterprises to develop stuff for, in this case, for IoT, for blockchain. Okay. Tom, we're almost, we've got five seconds left. Actually, I'll I'll give you a little bit more. Final word to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time, but final word to you. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, That's it, I think. I think I hit all the high points. Uh, Thanks a million for uh, your interest in having me in the show. It's always a fun, it's always a blast to chat with you. Okay then, pal. Thanks very much indeed.